Hey listeners, it's Keith from Evertrue. Evertrue is the end-to-end solution for insight, outreach, and analytics for higher ed advancement and stewardship teams around the world. Recently, we launched Evertrue Studios, Advancement's very first media hub, where subscribers have access to over 100 hours of free, on-demand original series and podcasts, all created with fundraisers in mind. Check us out at evertrue.com backslash studios. Welcome back, everyone, for another episode. I'm Erin Moran. And I'm David Lively. And today on Talking Shop, we are going to be talking about portfolio sizes. Um, and this is something you've done a lot of research on, David. I have, yeah. I've, well, I, I guess I've done research. I've done a lot of thinking on it, more than probably research. But yeah, I've done a whole lot of thinking and I'm trying to create some logic around this um, and also tried to really upend the historical way that most places have done this. Yes. So um, just just kind of summarize it for those of you who are um, maybe new to this uh, uh, debate or this concept. Um, the the concept is the whether or not um, limiting the size of a fundraiser's major gift portfolio is um, a strategy for greater fundraising success. And David has done. Um, research at a couple of the institutions where he's worked um, saying that that demonstrated he can speak to the numbers, but basically when portfolios were limited among the major gift team, those fundraisers who had a limited portfolio ended up raising more money than those who had a larger portfolio. Yeah, well, and it's even bigger than that, to be honest with you. It's it's, it's really less about an individual's portfolio size and his or her ability to raise gifts. Although I have heard from some analytics friends at various places, including uh, folks who used to be at University of Iowa, uh, that they actually were able to prove that. But it's really more about the collective effort. But before right. we get to that, kind of the my logic and rationale around it, can mm-hmm. I give some background and context? Please do. Okay. so. When I, I, my, my first major gift fundraising job was at Northwestern in the 1990s. I worked at the law school um, during their, their, what's called Campaign Northwestern from like 1997 to like nearly 2000. And when I got there, I was told to get a, to start building a portfolio. They gave me a list of names. It was an inherited portfolio and then encouraged me to continue to add as many names as possible. And the mm-hmm. notion was the more people I managed, the better for a couple of reasons. One, Big Bad Central couldn't get at them, and I was at the law school, so we didn't want the central fundraising teams talking to law prospects, because how could they possibly raise money from law prospects when they don't know the first thing about the law school? That was the rationale, right? Right, right. But now, of course, drives me crazy, because um, <laughs> I'm on the central side. <laughs> but also that, you know, the more people, the, the better I, access I'll have to good prospects, because then I can, you know, some of these people will be good donors, right? That was the rationale. Right. And I tried to understand when I started researching this, why we have big portfolios and, um, you know, looking at a a consulting firm a few years ago, did some analysis and said the average portfolio was about 125 in the country. Um, And that was across many, many institutions. And I've seen at some places where portfolios are as big as three or 400 or more. Yes, I've Um, seen that too. And that is always a train wreck. I think, I mean, forgive me if you have 400 prospects, but it's a train wreck. You are not calling those people. Well, <laughs> You're I'm, just not. I'm going to tell you how big a train wreck in a little bit. Okay. Okay. <laughs> but, but the, I, I, 
there's a, I think EAB suggested that one of the reasons that people had big portfolios was based on some actual scientific um, analysis originally. That was the theory. Okay. So there's a guy named Robin Dunbar. Um, he was a British anthropologist and in the early 1990s, he observed that humans can comfortably maintain about 150 stable relationships, right? Mm -hmm. um, that's more than I can do. Um, <laughs> I was just gonna say, what, define stable relationships. I was just saying, maybe about six or seven in my case. <laughs> but no, about 150 stay in. And he, he informally describes this as, and this is very British, as the number of people you would not feel embarrassed about joining uninvited for a drink if you happen to bump into them in a pub. <laughs> yes. Right? For Americans, we may need to temper that too. That's um, right. So yeah. really 150. <laughs> I mean, I would argue that the more the more you're drinking in the pub, the more people you're in totally happy to bump into. So there you go. Yeah. Think, and embarrassment I, is kind of not our thing either, but that's right. whatever. So, yeah. so, but this but this is actually considered the reason why portfolios can are somewhere between 125 and 150. And when I talk to people, they'll generally say, yeah, mine's about that size. At least historically, that was the case. Um, but I suggest that makes no sense at all, right? Mm -hmm. For me, I, I think about a few different numbers. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lay out some, some things here. Okay, so if the average number of prospects, let's just say it's 125. Okay, that's what that's what I think it was Ben Swelly Flessner a few years ago said that was the case. I don't know what uh -huh. it is today, but that was several years ago. Okay, let's let's first assume like the typical fundraising campaign in higher ed is let's just call it like seven to ten years long. Right. I've seen some go much longer. Um, we went ten years for our recent campaign. I've seen them go on almost um, like with with no end in a few cases, but let's just call it that like seven to ten years. Yeah. All right. The, now let's look at what's the total number of business days in a year. After you take out holidays, vacations, weekends, right? right. Um, it's about 220 to 230 days in a year, right? People forget that, right? Now, it doesn't mean we're not working weekends a lot of times and other things, because I work a lot of weekends when I travel, but you're really 220 to 230 days in a year when you're really doing your fundraising work. Okay, so then I say, what is the average number of major gift asks or solicitations per year? And this is where I get some um, difference between what we do and what other places do. Some places will say, oh, we do 25 a year. And I'm mm -hmm. like, oh, are those all real major gift solicitations or are those some high-end annual fund solicitations? And it may depend on your major gift threshold, the way you're right. Everybody looks a little different. Um, to quote my friend Ben Porter, if you've seen one university, you've seen one university. So I will, <laughs> I will acknowledge yeah. that every place is a little different. Um, right. But think about this, if, if you're making 10 to 15 asks a year, which I would argue is a reasonable guess or expectation for most major gift fundraisers, that is a solicitation every 15 to 22 business days. Mm -hmm. okay. Which is pretty fast. So if you're thinking about your schedule, if you're a major gift fundraiser and you're looking at your calendar, you're gonna, you should probably have, not that they're gonna be sequenced out exactly in this cadence, but you're, you should have roughly one solicitation every 15 to 22 days. That's mm -hmm. 10 to 15 per year based on the number of business days we have in a year. All right. And if you manage staff like I do, and if you have other administrative responsibilities, you're probably doing even fewer than that. Right. But and we have and I will acknowledge we have a couple of fundraisers, a few fundraisers at Northwestern over the last several years who have done more than 10 to 15 asks a year. So I acknowledge that it's possible. Right. Mm -hmm. And that might influence how big I think their portfolio could be 
based on their annual productivity. All right, but let's just say that 10 to 15 is a reasonable number. All right, if that's the case, it's gonna take between like nine and 13 years to solicit all of your prospects if you're doing 10 to 15 asks per year, which is longer and by generally longer than most campaigns. Right. So let's think about this. If you're the chief fundraiser for, I don't know, the business school at your university, and I use business school because we have a business school has a, a fair number of major gift fundraisers at the business school. And let's say you're the chief development officer here at Northwestern's Kellogg School of Management, right? Okay. And let's say you're assigned to 125 or 150 people. And let's say you're actually going to make about 10 to 12 solicitations a year. So you're telling your dean, basically, I'm assigned to 125 people. I'm not going to be able to solicit everybody I'm assigned to during this campaign. And then beyond that, to think, you know, I probably don't know who, you know, I don't really know who I'm going to solicit um, 10 years from now, eight years from now, five years from now. To think you know what your work looks like five years right. from now is right. sort of absurd. In my opinion, it's really like, you know who you're going to solicit over the next 36 months. And that's as far out with some exceptions for people who are paying off a pledge over maybe a five-year schedule or people who have some sort of planned liquidity event or some other reason for pushing back a solicitation to beyond a, you know, a three-year time frame. Uh, but most of your prospects, you're sort of working. And we look at our, our, our how long it takes for us to go from identifying a, a new prospect and going for their, that first ask. It's just around a year. And sometimes mm -hmm. it can take up to 18 months or even longer, but that's about the, that's about the timing. So the thing is, if you're assigned to 125 people, you're, you're actually keeping people away from other fundraisers that, you, that could be solicited. Mm -hmm. And if you're the top fundraiser at the business school, why not say, wow, how many people will I legitimately solicit over the next three years? Take that number, take the rest of these really good prospects, because if you're the top fundraiser, you're expected to have really good prospects. Maybe right. pass those down to fundraisers below you in the hierarchy. And in what I would say is prioritize the collective portfolio for the business school, or in our case, for the entire university. Let's collectively prioritize our prospects based on three criteria, capacity to give, affinity for the institution. And my third thing, which most people forget, timing. How quickly do you think you'll be able to get to a solicitation? So you should be focused on people right. who you think are capable of doing this over the next three years, roughly, right? And right. That, should, that should be how you prioritize the entire portfolio. And then when you release prospects back into the open pool, there will be a lot of people who were previously lying fallow and hugely ignored available for other fundraisers to go out and see. And that's how we were able to increase our productivity. It's kind of like um, the analogy I like to think of for this is kind of like when they have one of those big stacks of champagne glasses um, and you pour at the top and it, everything like tr trickles down and fills all of the glasses. It's sort yeah. of that, as opposed to having a bunch of stacked glasses in separate lines. That's right. And you know, the, the biggest, the biggest um, concern I hear when I talk to people about this is, well, what happens to all those prospects when you let go of them? I say they actually might get called on. <laughs> yes. The wor at worst, they will get treated better <laughs> they will, right. if they're dying uh, on the vine in your portfolio. Well, and yeah. so I did some analysis when I got here, and the average portfolio size at Northwestern when I first arrived was 115. And I knew that was going to be way too big. And there were some that were, much e they were even much bigger. They were upwards of 250, so it varied quite a bit. 
And so what I what I did was I looked at our, our team and I said, as prospect management, I said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to look at everybody who was assigned. And I don't want to take people who were newly assigned because people will start to dismiss my theory. I want mm -hmm. you to give me only people who were assigned for at least three years or longer um, to a fundraiser at Northwestern. And here's what we discovered. And it was shocking to people. 45% of all prospects rated as having the capacity to give a million dollars and above, upwards of 100 million, so a million plus, 45% of them had not been visited in three years. Wow. And then when you go to the six-figure prospects, people rated 100 to 999,000, 55% of those prospects had not been seen in three years. And some of them, and by the way, in both cases, many had never been seen. They were, right. and so the assumption was they're in a portfolio, someone is managing them. But the reality was they're in a portfolio largely lying fallow and ignored. Right. And the funny thing is, $100 donors or $1,000 donors were getting vastly more attention than seven and eight figure prospects who were lying, because guess what? As soon as they're assigned, nobody can call on them. Right. Right. So, oh, take them out. Don't invite my prospects to your events and don't put them in the annual fund appeals and don't do any of these things because this is my prospect. I'm going to solicit them. Right. But then they end up getting less attention, less correspondence, fewer invitations to events. And right. all of these things give them you know, like it's actually pushing them farther away. And so what happens is when you release the prospects and you collectively prioritize all of the prospects of the organization who can be solicited over the next three years, the open pool is enormous. And then people can then have agency in creating their own portfolios. And there's a lot of good prospects. And then the last thing I'll say is we used to get our prospect research team were taxed constantly for saying, hey, I need new prospects for this school. I need new prospects yes. for this school. Give me new prospects every week or every month because I need new ones, right? What were they doing? They're finding the good ones, putting them in portfolio and doing nothing with them. And then the, yeah. the research team's like, I can't find any more good prospects in Cleveland or Dallas. I don't know where they are, right? Because they're already assigned. They were not being yeah. managed effectively. They were being ignored, but they were. So then they're constantly spending time trying to find new prospects instead of actually, hey, maybe we should be doing research on the best prospects we have to determine who should be solicited for higher dollar levels right. among the existing pool instead of churning for new names when that really wasn't doing anything. And, you know, what you're talking about right now, to me, kind of explains why the profession, um, the, the prospect research profession morphed into a prospect development profession where you've got the um, prospect management and prospect research areas together. That's because right. basically, I think people got tired of being told that they needed prospects. Uh, there's there's so many prospects you you'd be hard pressed at any place even places that are you know have a lower um history of philanthropy etc you'd be hard pressed to prove numerically that you actually don't have enough prospects it's it's not the number of them it's the to your point it's the management of them and the prioritization of them a hundred percent it is that is that is so true i mean we have fourteen thousand plus rated prospects who are unassigned I can't hire enough fundraisers to get at. I mean, honestly, we just, it's right. just too big a number. Now, some of those are, are probably not legitimately good prospects. Right. And mind you, a lot of people who are not rated are probably good prospects that we don't know about. Right. right. So there's a combination of, but, but, you know, just because someone is assigned um, doesn't mean they're doing anything. And a good example is I would, I would talk to VPs or people around the country. They're like, oh, we need to make sure they're managed. So put them in a portfolio. So someone's managing them as though, 
having a name on a list was meaningful in some way. Right. But it was literally, they would, you'd hire new fundraisers, they'd get a list of 120, 150 names, and they didn't know any of these people were. Yeah. And find their, figure out who are the best ones, but probably ignore most of them, right? And yeah. because we incentivize visits, they would just take visits with anybody. And then the, the other perverse incentives here were, in many places, the way that they were measured was how much money they raised. Well, how do you determine that? Well, it's, it's what the collective portfolio you have gave. So if I'm assigned to 200 people and they're making lots of five and $10,000 annual fund gifts, even if in spite of me, mm -hmm. then I get credit for that in spite of doing nothing. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, these are all good. I mean, you and I have talked about this a lot. You've convinced me of your argument, but it's not going to stop me from asking you a couple <laughs> questions because okay. pushing back on you is my job. Um, but and I love it. Okay. <laughs> one thing I do um, want to kind of note about you in your in in what you have written about and talked about is that um, understandably, uh, it's based on your own experience. Yeah. And so you're a variable that is is part of those equations. And to be honest with you, and I don't uh, I don't mean to you know flatter you, but you you're a very very good fundraiser and you're a good manager of fundraisers. So to me, I'd be interested to see this sort of analyzed at a broader level with a bunch of different um, institutions to kind of remove you from the from the mix, so to That's speak. Fair. That's fair. I mean, well, A, I don't know that I'm a great fundraiser or a great manager, but it's nice of you to say, but it is fair I'm to say. I'm just being I, nice, Dave. I, I appreciate <laughs> it. That, that, I, that I appreciate. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, I think it's fair to say, how does this work at other places? Um, you know, take this variable, one variable out, right, is the person right. who implemented this. And I have talked anecdotally to many people across the country who have done this or attempted to do this and had success. But I don't have any data to give you because nobody's sharing lots of data with me. Right. Um, the thing is, like, it, it, it makes perfect sense, though, that when you free up good prospects to be seen, you give agency to fundraisers to actually create their own portfolios and that they actually have good prospects to choose from, either for their school or their region or however they're organized, um, that you're, and you create good incentives using their performance metrics, that encourage them to do the right kinds of things, which is to raise major gifts, not just take visits or or relax when they get a big gift and, and hold, you know, sandbag all their fundraising till next year. Like right. when you have good incentives and you have small portfolios, you're allowing the organization to continually find new good prospects because everybody is constantly qualifying and disqualifying people all the time. Right. And it, it helps you better manage the, the, the prospect pool because we are constantly trying to find out who are the people we're missing. Exactly. That, it keeps me up at night thinking, who are the prospects we're missing? And VPs think, oh, we're not missing anybody because they're assigned. And that's a huge fallacy in logic because the, we knew assignment means nothing. I mean, again, 45% of our top prospects were completely ignored. The, sing, right. the My single biggest gift, I'll give you an example. This may be unfair, but my single biggest gift, there is a, there is a couple I'm an undergrad and law grad, um, and they both graduated in 1985, one from law school, one undergrad from arts and sciences. They had been giving $5,000 a year um, since the since the mid 80s, they up to 1,000 to 5,000. They were giving to athletics. They were assigned to a fundraiser in the law school. Fundraiser in the law school for three years had never called on them. I think it sent an email, but never got a response. Just kind of didn't know who they were. Their rating was really low. 
right? They're because they the, the husband, they were both attorneys. One went here, one went to another law school, but the husband had also founded a company that did exceptionally well, but it was privately held. And you couldn't even find it in our local business papers. It wasn't something you would be able to see at the time that I first. So, so when we asked fundraisers to release prospects, uh, the fundraiser in the law school released the prospect. And I happened to see a Google alert that this, and we're, you know, we're, we get lots of great research from our prospect research team, that this prospect had just bought a house here in Chicago in, you know, the north side of town. And I'm like, oh, because it, it, it was big enough to be material, like it was like a two, three million dollar house. Mm-hmm. So I looked up the name and I saw that they'd been assigned to the law school, to a person at the law school. I called the person at the law school. And he said, oh, yeah, I've seen their name. I got rid of them because I was trying to shed my portfolio. I sent an email once and never responded. So then I called the athletics office and I said, hey, did you ever talk to this couple? They're like, oh, yeah, they would call for football tickets every year and talk. I said, did you ever think about asking them for a gift? No, of course not. They were out of the law school. <laughs> yeah. And, I, and then I called the College of Arts and Sciences fundraiser because the undergrad, the wife was a graduate from College of Arts and Sciences. They didn't know who they were. So I thought, <sighs> OK, well, this is interesting. So I emailed and got a response within 20 minutes um, and then set up a phone call. And then um, introduced them to the athletic director because 95% of their giving had gone to athletics. Um, we went to dinner and then introduced them to the law school dean and a number of other people on campus. You know, fast forward about um, 12 months, they ended up buying a professional sports team and then ended up giving a $40 million oh gift. So wow. they went from 5,000 to 40 million in about a year and a half. Now, you know, if I had if I had found them after they bought the sports team, I would never have gotten in the door because then they by then they had lots of people, you know, kind of screening their calls and doing things. It was much harder to get at them um, to try to try to, in, you know, to engage with them. Um, but that to me was a clear example of and a clear, you know, maybe an exaggerated example of, hey, when you're when you're assigned to someone and you're that you're supposed to be managing them, but you don't know the first thing about them, much less you don't realize that they're billionaires. Um, that's kind of crazy. Right. Uh- I have two points to make about this example. First of all, to those of you who um, noticed that Dave pushed back on me when I said he's a good fundraiser, just want to point to this as evidence of my comment, because you, this is kind of your thing is um, you've always been really good at kind of um, surfacing, you know, you're like a journalist who follows a, a little lead until, you know, down a rabbit hole. And I've seen you do this before, but the other thing that um, I want to point out is the wonderful work of the law fundraiser who relinquished the prospect, which was the right thing to do, right? So per your own advice, like that person deserves a lot of credit because we can, you know, I'm sure that if they're listening to this and they're thinking, oh, I'm an idiot for not calling them. No, you are great because the important thing is not who asks them. The important thing is that someone asks them, right? Yeah, 100%. And here's the thing, I'm going to give you some data and I know you're going to say, well, you're you're an N of one. I think that's the, the mathematical yeah. expression, right? So I'm one example. But um, so we had our team. I wanted to see how did this change our performance for fundraisers at Northwestern? And it was not just small portfolios, but it was small portfolios combined with different performance metrics, which is another conversation that, that people like to have with me. Um, so here's, here's what I can tell you. I wanted to look at same store sales, right? Mm-hmm. So you think about like the Pottery Barn on... Um, Michigan Avenue here in Chicago, right? Right. You know, it's like, how much did it, what were revenues Black Friday last year compared to Black Friday this year? Like it's, so it's sort of an apples to apples comparison, right? Right. It's the same store, exact same physical spot. So I wanted to look at 20 fundraisers who were at Northwestern um, in 2012 
working in the old style with big portfolios and metrics that were just dollars and visits. And then I wanted to look two years later, FY14, so fiscal year 14, and I wanted to look at them. Now they have portfolios of around 40 or fewer, and their goals are focused on raising major gifts and making major gift asks, and then to a lesser degree dollars. And not at all focused on visits. And so this group of 20 fundraisers, this is what I found fascinating. Um, they increased their number of solicitations by 170%. They went from a, a collectively 66 major gift asks to 178 major gift asks two years later. By, by shrinking their portfolio. Shrinking their portfolios and being focused on actually raising gifts, but raising gifts with the people who are actually going to give them gifts. Right. Versus just people to whom they were assigned, they don't even know these who these people are. Right. So they were forced to make decisions. Their number of their number of major gifts raised of a hundred thousand plus. That's our major gift threshold. Went from twenty seven to eighty four. It grew by two hundred and eleven percent. Right, and then the dollars was just dramatically different. They grew dollars from eighteen million to one hundred and twenty five million. Right, because you raise more gifts, you raise more oh small gifts, more medium sized gifts, and more big gifts. And so, you know, going from 27 to 84 major gifts is going to is going to dramatically increase how much money you raise. So what I like to think about is when you when you shrink portfolios, it's not about one person back to our original comment. Right. It's really about how can the how can the team collectively be more productive by a having access to the very best prospects. Right. Not hiding them for seven years from now mm -hmm. because the portfolio is too big, but collectively prioritizing all of the prospects based on capacity, affinity, and time, capacity, affinity, and timing, right. and, and constantly being dynamic. And you know that my portfolio changes every six months, and so it's always looking thirty-six months out from today, not not thirty-six out from you know six months ago. So you're you're constantly moving your portfolio. It's dynamic process. You should constantly be prioritizing the collective portfolio as much as humanly possible. Yeah, I love it, and you know it it makes me think a little bit about team metrics, which is not something that we've talked about before. And I think is, <clears throat> you know, different places, a lot, most places don't uh, employ those. And if they do, I, I, by the way, if you, if you're listening to this and you, you have an office that does that, please let us know. Cause I'd love to hear what you're doing, but um, you know, this really is about learning how to play as a member of a team. Yeah. Right. So if you're playing basketball, oh gosh, I'm going to use a sports analogy. Here's here I go. <laughs> I'm going to get in trouble. So if you're playing sports ball, from what I understand, if you don't have the opportunity to put the ball in the place, but the other person does, then you are supposed to, as I understand it, get the ball to the other person. I think that's your your first of all, your sports <laughs> analogy is fantastic. Um, <laughs> That's called an assist usually in most. Sports. Okay. Yes. And, and I think people should get credit for that. I mean, they, we do, we do give credit a lot of times for handoffs, but I think we should consider um, relinquishing good prospects to be a form of a handoff. You know, that's not always something that we, we look at, but yeah. I think it's something that, um, you know, when the collective uh, office does well, that everybody should be recognized for yeah. that. Well, I agree. And what I, what I will say is um, the one thing you talked about group goals, we have a group goal, which is not dollars, but it is how many major gifts can we raise as an office? And I focus, 
in particular on individual gifts, right? Because foundation nice. and corporate gifts are a different animal in many respects, especially if you're a big research institution. So we have a goal of getting a certain number of individual major gifts, regardless of what your threshold is, this is something that you can measure. So we have a goal, stated goal each year and, in, and a target for number of solicitations at the 100,000 plus level. And just to give you a sense, our number of major gifts raised in fiscal year 12, before we started doing this, we grew our team. So it's not entirely fair just to use these, but I wanna say like this was a dramatic change. We went from 184 gifts in 2012 to 342 gifts in 2022. And wow. our average run rate, if you look at the three years between, we, 2010 was 120 gifts, 2011 was 127, 2012 was 184. We started growing in part because I started forcing people to make decisions and start shrinking portfolios during FY12 and start thinking about different types of goals. And then we are now consistently above 300 major gifts per year. And our num our dollars are correspondingly much larger because mm -hmm. again, you raise more gifts, you're gonna raise more gifts at all levels. And because I'm, I've been uh, head of operations before, I need to kind of point out the logic here for people who might've missed it, that what Dave did was shrink the portfolios and essentially prove therefore the, the dollar value of um, development officers, of adding more development officers to the team. So basically these aren't unconnected uh, points. You needed to um, basically get a true representation of what somebody's actual productivity could be before you can make the argument that you have the capacity to take on more staff. That's right. And if you don't really understand what your capacity is, um, you can't really justify more staff. And mm -hmm. if you're, if you, if you just, everybody's like, well, just give more prospects to each fundraiser. They're not going to raise more gifts because they're assigned to more people. Right. That's, the, that's the massive fallacy that I did just kind of blows my mind. Right. So there's only, it's all a question of physics. It's time and energy. How many people can you physically get in front of, in a, you know, during the, during the fiscal year? That's right. really the whole point of it. And then how long does it take to raise a major gift? you know, to use, my mentor would say to earn the right to ask for a gift. Well, each person's a little different, but you know, on average, it's about a year from start to finish for a new for a new prospect. After that, repeat business is a little bit faster, right? Yeah. So absolutely. I mean, but that's the math. That's the basic math on it, and you can't change that just by adding more prospects. So it kind of that's why it helps justify the logic when you think about it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I I love it. I I've been convinced by your argument for a long time. I do think. Um, and you've pointed this out many times that a key part of it is the relinquishing of prospects that you can't work on. And I, I think I'd like to kind of recommend that fundraisers uh, think about that when they go back to the office today and maybe think about that periodically throughout the year um, from the standpoint of uh, being able to better focus on the prospects that they know they're going to ask and also from the standpoint of offering an opportunity to someone else. You know, I think there's there's different philosophies and I I saw somebody one time um, who actually said, um, these are the top 200 prospects in the office. No one can talk to these people except for me, which is totally ineffective in my opinion, in terms of how to work a portfolio. But there's people who really feel like I'm at the top of the office. I'm the person who needs to make the calls. I need to do this and that. And yeah, people who have the title 
of vice president for advancement or whatever, they they can open doors uh, that other people can't open. But it doesn't mean that they have to always be the person on the call. And it also doesn't mean that they have to be the prospect manager. That's 100%. I mean, I put my boss and our president in front of a ton of people. They're not as the, my boss isn't assigned to so our vice right. president. Right. I'm pulling the strings behind the scenes, making sure that we're moving the strategy forward. Mm -hmm. so, you know, and I do that with other fundraisers all the time. It's it's like who's what's the best strategy for each prospect? I know exactly. that because I'm managing the prospect. But, right. Right. That's the whole key. Right. And and you're being trusted with that. So if you're a manager, um, that's something to think about as you uh, reflect on this as well. Is you know, I mean, first of all. I hope you have are surrounded by people that you do trust. If you're not, then that's something that you need to think about also. But assuming that you have staff members that you can count on, then by all means, give them the, the bandwidth to be able to um, take on some of these prospects. Even if it's a presidential prospect, the only person who can solicit them is the president, that's okay. Let your staff member staff the president on this. You know, Let people stretch. It gives them a great opportunity and it it takes nothing from you. You know, yeah, you trusted them enough to hire them. You should trust them enough to actually do their yes. job. Yes. Amen. What's good for what's what's strange and ironic about this whole system is what's good for the team is actually good for the individual fundraiser. Because mm -hmm. what's good for the team is to collectively free up prospects for everybody to be able to have access to them, right? Mm -hmm. And that that means that each fundraiser has access to good prospects. So it's good for the team because you're you're gonna end up raising more gifts. And it's good for the individual fundraiser because they're not constantly searching for the Glen Gary leads, you know, to use a exactly. you know, pop exactly. culture. You know, they're really they're out there available to us, you know, and, and we no one yeah. can come to Northwestern and say, I can't find any good prospects. I'm like, there's 14,000 rated unmanaged prospects right now. There's plenty to go around. Right. It's an investment right. of riches. I need to hire like 50 fundraisers to get at those those prospects. So that's the beautiful thing about this is you really because everybody here can be highly productive. And yet we still have a lot of prospects available. Final thoughts or recommendations? Um, I think, you know, smaller is better. Smaller is bigger. <laughs> yeah, smaller is bigger. Um, I like it. Yeah, and and I would just say as a final thought, you know, this is something that obviates the need for a really thoughtful, if you're going to do this, you need a really, really thoughtful leadership annual giving strategy um, because basically there's going to have to be a place where you put all of these phenomenally qualified prospects, and you want to make sure that you are still um, putting them in the pipeline and, and yeah. making sure that you're engaging them. This is something that I will forever be um, unashamed to do the shameless plug. And my shameless plug is that that's something that Evertrue does. But regardless of whether um, it's Evertrue or, or internal or however you do it, you need a thoughtful approach because you need to figure out how to scale a leadership annual fund strategy. You can't just have three people um, suddenly working with 50,000 people. Like no, that's I, not- I, I fundamentally agree with you. Um, and yet even in spite of that, it'll still, you'll still have dramatic in, improvement because yeah. many of these people are completely ignored. Not even, they're not even engaged at, at all, that level, much less at the annual fund level. So, but I agree with you to be able to grow your pipeline you really do need a thoughtful annual giving leadership strategy. Yep. All right. Thanks so much, Dave. Um, thanks so much to all of you for listening. Uh, what did you think? Feel free to uh, reach out to us on LinkedIn. We love hearing from you. Um, we've we've had really nice feedback from people and we just, uh, it's a day maker. So thank you for 
all the kind feedback and um, thoughtful feedback and uh, we welcome any additional stuff. So reach out to us on LinkedIn or feel free to email us at talkingshop at evertrue.com. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you.